My name is Jim Farley, and this is Drive. I'm definitely a motorcycle guy. You know, I, I used to bike to work at a car company. People used to make fun of me. Farley, you'd ride into Toyota on a bike? Over time, I just realized that I like the kind of mini FU every day of getting on a bike or a motorcycle and enjoying the crap out of a few moments, even if it's a commute. We have a little secret. The secret is that if you ride, you get to steal a little bit more out of life every day. And there's an expression that kind of unites us. There are no motorcycles in front of psychiatry offices. And the reason why people say that is because you could have the worst day in your life. When you put that helmet on, press the starter button, and go for a 20-minute ride, it all evaporates. You have to concentrate, and you have a sense of kind of adventure, almost like a, a young person's sense of adventure on your bike. It's all there. And when you're done, any problem you had most of the time, you either thought about it and resolved it, or it's gone. It's all out the window. Because you're looking at the birds, you're smelling the cornfields, you're smelling the lake, you're smelling the rain on the asphalt. All of that's happening every time you get on the bike. Someone who shares my passion is Jochen Zeiss. He's the CEO and chairman of Harley-Davidson. I started riding when I was 16 and it was just sort of that feeling of now I can go anywhere, right? I can't wait to talk to him today. We're gonna learn a lot about him and his vision for this American icon, Harley-Davidson. I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. I just jump on my, at the time it was a little scooter. And, and I think I, I still have that today. And more, more than ever coming out of COVID, or still being in COVID, but certainly experiencing sort of lockdowns and, and social distancing, not wanting to even be indoors with others. There's just no better feeling than getting on a motorcycle and, and getting out and ride. And, and I think that, that to me is that freedom at being connected to your bike knowing there's, there's a bit of a bit of yeah, danger sure. involved in riding. Uh, and it just gives me that, you know, freedom and clear to clear my head and, and just enjoy the world. Totally agree. My, my first, um, I had a paper route and I finally got enough money to buy a, a motor scooter, uh, a moped, as we would say in the US. And um, I got it to go a little faster because I drilled holes before the exhaust governor. So it would go like 40 <laughs> miles an hour. Have you had any kind of crazy, not crazy, but you know, rides where you were like, that was a moment I will never forget. That was a great experience. Just like you, I would make sure that my little scooter was faster yep. <laughs> than it was allowed to go. Yep. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would drill holes into the exhaust to make it sound better. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when I was 18, I moved to Italy. I lived in Florence for a year and I, I bought my first proper bike and just, you know, going out on the weekends with a, with a backpack and a sleeping bag and just, you know, jumping on the bike and driving to the coast, riding mm. to the coast. Those were my early adventurous experiences as a, as a, as a rider. Uh, and today, I mean, you know, having had the opportunity to ride a Pan America in an adventure touring bike off-road at, uh, at our wildlife conservancy in Kenya. That was just uh, quite a, an extraordinary experience because I've, I've never done that. Um, I've done it on foot. I've been 
driving, but on, not on a motorcycle. And looking at Mount Kenya, looking mm. at you know zebras and elephants, that that was great. But I we we have had a lot of great. I've had a lot of great moments just this year. You know whether it's riding in, in New Mexico or in South Dakota during Sturges. Uh, or even in the valley in Los Angeles. I mean, that's the beauty about America. There, there are so many places you can go with your bike that are just, uh, just extraordinarily beautiful. Mm. And most people wouldn't know this, but we probably should talk about it. Weren't you like the youngest CEO in, in German history? Like, what was that like being a CEO at a very young age? Yeah, I was 29 and wow. uh, I got a call from uh, our sh major shareholder and they asked me to give a presentation. They said, well, why don't you run the company? And I said, wow, I'm 29. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, maybe we want to wait a couple of weeks because then I turn 30. When we announce it, it sounds a little better than being 29. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the German press was writing about me not being able to withstand the pressure and the, the difficult job because the company was essentially bankrupt on paper. And I was like, what pressure? What are they talking about? <laughs> I was just didn't know any incredibly better. excited. I didn't know any better, exactly. Yeah. And I was just excited to, to, to be given this opportunity. What did you do? What happened? Because we all know about, you know, the products, but we, we don't know what happened behind the scenes. You know, it was one of those brands that had been around for a long time. Yeah. Puma and Adidas were two brothers. Puma was founded in 48 because the two brothers had a big fight. No kidding. I didn't uh, know it, that both companies yeah, were connected. Hmm. They were totally connected. Hmm. One had uh, had a bit of a fling with the wife of the other brother. Oh, complicated. And that, <laughs> ended up very complicated. And then they decided to never speak again in their lives. Hmm. And then, you know, Adi Dassler, Adolf Dassler founded Adidas and Rudolf Dassler founded Puma. Oh. And, uh, and it's a little village outside of Nuremberg, and it was sort of a, a river running in between the two companies, and that was it was like East and West Germany, really, at the times. <laughs> Nobody was allowed to talk to each other when I started. You, you, you could only eat in a Puma restaurant or in a Puma, get your wow. gas in a, in a gas station that was serviced by a Puma guy, and there was a, a, two soccer clubs that were Puma, and one was Adidas. Uh, it was quite crazy. And, and that led to the demise of both brands in a way, because then the American brands, Nike, Reebok, mm -hmm. at the time started to grow, be much more customer focused, while the German brands were more about, you know, performance and functionality and, and didn't really understand what, you know, trendsetting meant. And, uh, and then fast forward, Puma was on paper bankrupt. And that's when I took over. And then we decided to position the brand as a sport and lifestyle brand. And, and that, you know, you, you, we were always the underdog, you know, we were f the, 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 the David that was fighting Goliath, really, because Nike and Adidas were so much bigger. So we positioned ourselves that way. And we were the more stylish, um, you know, brand that uh, was really into the lifestyle of the sports lifestyle rather than just the performance. Uh, you know, I signed Usain Bolt when he was very young mm. as a runner. What was that and, like? Uh, well, he was great. He was 17. He was, wow. you know, and I, but we, we knew he would be fast, but we, he was also a cool guy, right? Yep. He was a DJ, he loved music. <laughs> and I said, that's life, lifestyle and sport. Yes. And the same with Serena Williams. Mm. We signed her at a very young age and then she became number one in the world. Now she's with Nike, unfortunately, but uh, her early years were with Puma. Two years ago, after all that incredible success and being such a young CEO, you took over Harley. Um, what was it like running Harley as a CEO during the pandemic? I mean, basically, 
you started it happen. <laughs> so give people a flavor for what it was like to be at leading the company. Well, when the board asked me if I would take the job, COVID was just around the corner and, and we had to look how we would get to the US. I needed to get a visa first, which at the time wasn't that easy for a foreigner, uh, especially you know with COVID and a lockdown looming. And uh, I was on the last flight out. Mm. And, uh, and one of my first decisions was to close down the factories. And then you start burning cash and you realize you have only so many weeks to go. Yep. And so the, the first big decision was to, how are we going to get a couple of billion dollars to feel safe about this pandemic and getting out of it strong? And, and, and that's, you know, thanks to the power of the brand and the company, we were able to raise those funds very quickly. And, and from there, the, it all started, really. You know, we, the company hadn't really been successful for a number of years. And so I knew I had to take it through what we call the rewire, uh, rewiring everything and, and, and to bring it back on a path of success and build on the legacy of the brand, um, but really remodeling everything. Uh, and that was the first nine months, uh, you know, pretty dramatic decisions we had to take. But we are now into our first five-year strategic plan, which is working well. This year was the first year and uh, we've had some great success. We've just been voted with Pan America, the motorcycle of the year. Oh, that's terrific news. (laughs) That is amazing. And think about that. After all those years, Harley goes into the adventure bike world, which had purposely not been, and and becomes motorcyclists uh, of the year with a brand new category. I mean, that is terrific! Congratulations. That is, um, yeah, it is. And we, you know, we picked our battles. We said, let's let's go into categories where we think we can win. We we can lead that uh, that makes sense. That is in line with with the brand and what we stand for. And you know, going touring, touring bikes, Grand American touring is very Harley. But touring off off road and going off road is also very Harley. I mean, if you look at the early pictures of when there were no paved highways, everything was an off road. So yes. I just felt that this was the unique opportunity and our engineers and designers put an incredible bike together and, and, and being recognized as motorcycle of the year and best adventure touring bike, knowing how, uh, you know, how tough the competition is, we are thrilled about. So I know that the listeners would love to learn more about Harley's transition to zero emissions and how does that work? You know, cars get you from point A to point B to get you to work. A bike is more of a discretionary purchase. Um, do you think they're irreconcilable, zero emissions and motorcycles, or is it a perfect fit? Um, well, when I joined the board uh, over 10 years ago, uh, I, I said we have to look at electric, uh, we have to think ahead, and we decided to to create an incredible bike, Livewire, that became the first Harley-Davidson that was electric, and Livewire in itself became a brand, and uh, I spun it off last year as a separate brand, and in fact it's uh, going to become its own public company. And uh, wow. and that's really exciting that's and big we want news. A very big news. But because battery technology is not at a place where we can actually put it in into the core segments of Harley Davidson, we are we're taking the approach of having a separate brand. But through that, we think that uh, in 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 a few years' time, when the battery technology is ready, we can also uh, you know bring electric to Harley Davidson. And it's all about interpreting the the, the look and feel of what we stand for as a brand uh, and 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 use electric you know to 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 you know to 
translate that as well. Um, and, and, and I think we can do that. It'll take a bit of time. I mean, we, the combustion engine will, will be around. We are investing a lot in the fuel efficiency. There are alternative technologies that we are looking at to see how we can uh, maybe even continue with combustion. Um, but at the same time, you know, you've got to think about the future and, and what, are, what, what, what are the opportunities and threats. And, and electric is certainly an opportunity that we are grabbing, uh, but with a different brands. And so it's always part of the family of the Harley-Davidson Motor Company, but it's its own separate brands, like a family member. And, and we think this is going to allow us to be really the innovator in the motorcycle space. What Jochen just said is you know, really shocking news in a way for me to take an iconic company like Harley and separate the company in two and take your electric vehicles, have a different group to create that is a real dedication to the future. Like that, that's basically saying we are going to do this fast. It's going to be a creative exercise. It will respect the brand. You know, you heard them. He doesn't want to change what Harley is and isn't. But by creating a separate company dedicated to electrics, he means he wants to go a lot faster. Like we're going to see electric Harleys all over the place. To me, that's a real sign to have an iconic company that's a discretionary product. Um, do make that kind of commitment to electric and zero emission is a very humbling moment. I'm really impressed. Coming up after the break, you'll hear from Jochen Zeiss, who's the CEO of Harley-Davidson, an innovative leader who's changing one of the most iconic American brands. This is Drive. This fall, I had a chance to ride single track in, in a forest in northern Michigan uh, bike um, happened to be a KTM and I went with a bunch of uh, friends and you know we had such a great experience but I remember halfway through the ride we're 100 miles away from anywhere and we all shut off our bikes we've been riding for a couple hours and you could just hear the wind through the aspen trees um, and it was so beautiful and we're all kind of looking at each other like wow how lucky are we to be in this moment in this beautiful place. Um, and, and then we started to argue <laughs> after we got done with the ride. Would you ride an electric bike in the forest? And literally, I was surprised. Half the people said, you know, I'd prefer to go electric if I could, if the range was there, if, because I think the experience would be better. Do you think Harley would ever do that? Build a lightweight bike for you know, for just having fun out there in the wilderness that was zero emission? And, and how do you think about sound and that hardly feel of a V-twin and a vibration and, and electric? I'd love to hear your thoughts about all of that. Yeah, I think there's space for both, you know, just like I love to jump on my, my Harley and, and that sound is very important to me and mm -hmm. that feel that it just always has to feel and, and sound like Harley. So I think there's space for that. But then at the same time, you know, I like jumping on an electric bike and having a different sensation, but it's still a very similar one, although it's quiet, but it, you know, I've just 
tried our new prototype and it sounds like a, a, a fighter jet. I mean, there is a sound. It's not totally quiet, right? When, once you pull that throttle, twist that throttle, it, it's, it's action. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a sound to yep. it. We, we, we put a haptic heartbeat onto the bikes. You actually feel the pulse. So mm -hmm. that bike is alive. It has personality. And, and, and there are, you know, riders that just love that too. And, uh, you know, just like there are people that want to drive a combustion car, you know, once you've experienced electric, it's a, it's a very different sensation and, and it's a fantastic sensation too. It doesn't mean one is better than the other, but from an emissions point of view, certainly we all have to, as companies and leaders, have to innovate so that we, we, we can minimize our impact on nature. And that's the responsibility, whether that's with a combustion engine or with an electric engine or whatever hybrid technology might bring. We, we have to just look at all opportunities and bring it back to emotion. I think the emotional aspect, and once you're emotional about something, you have an opinion. You like this, you don't like that. And, and that's fine too. But for those different customer groups, we have a different experience to offer. So how, how are your environmental projects going? Good. Yeah. You know, we're working actually to try and bring rhino into my wildlife conservancy in Kenya. Uh, that's a huge undertaking, uh, as you can imagine. So that's the one one thing I'm doing. Then the long run is that initiative where just, we just started 10 years ago, which is now preserving 22 million acres of biodiversity. Where, where did that passion come from for uh, the African continent and also for environmentalism? I traveled to Africa in the late 80s and I just fell in love with it and I never looked back and I, I decided that I wanted to make Africa my home and I, I searched for a place for you know more than 14 years and uh, found that uh, a rundown cattle ranch in northern Kenya uh, which I then bought about 17 years ago uh, it's 50,000 acres and I it was completely rundown derelict and uh, degraded and uh, I, I turned it into wildlife conservancy and gave nature a break and uh, and now it's it's a hot spot of biodiversity with endangered species you have lion you have elephants you have le leopards cheetah buffalo you name it and it's it's sprawling of wildlife were you surprised at how fast the land and the animals recovered yeah 10 years i would say it took i mean that you would barely see an elephant, uh, you know, uh, w once a week, maybe a and a line every six months, you see that now, almost every morning. So it's it's quite extraordinary to give when you give nature a break, how quickly it can come back. And it's just every time I go, it's better and better and better. It's so beautiful. When you see one of the big five animals, what is your body do like how do you react to that when you <laughs> when you when you see a lion or an elephant and what happens? Well, I think it depends on whether you're on foot or whether you're in a car. How about on <laughs> it's, it's foot? A big, How about on foot? On foot, it's uh, respect, right? It's mm -hmm. the respect to keep a distance and let nature be nature and, and, and sort of don't intrude, right? Don't disturb. Do not disturb. Mm -hmm. But it, there's nothing better than experiencing nature on foot and... Uh, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the bush, so I know how to approach wildlife and uh, how to keep the wind uh, in my face and uh, and not spook the animals. But uh, it's a very special feeling. You feel, feel very connected to our planet and to nature, really. Hmm. It's something we've kind of lost. Um, most of us on the I planet so. have lost that Sadly. kind of connection. Yeah, and when you're in a car, even when it's an open car, right, a safari vehicle, I mean, it, you still get some of it, but there's still a bit of an invisible barrier because 
wildlife doesn't recognize you as a human when you sit in a car. It's Interesting. It's kind of weird, but that's how it is. They, they don't see you. They might smell you, but they will not see you and they will not react to you. When you're on foot, totally different thing. They will recognize the silhouette, they will smell you, and then they will react. Very different. Uh, to me, it's a great metaphor for our discussion about motorcycles and cars because I, I love motorcycle people because you know there's really no filter when you're inside a car it's one kind of experience when you're on a motorcycle it's totally different you smell things you hear things you you have to pay attention because it's a lot more dangerous on a motorcycle than a car it's it's a different experience yes, it is i think this whole adventurous spirit and uh, and the, the freedom that you experience by by being on a bike you can, you can experience that and you know you go for a ride you go to ride in nature the journey is the destination and and yes. i think experiencing that in 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 nature and and you know around wildlife in africa is is, is very much uh, a similar experience the advantage is you can never outrun mm. uh, a wild animal on your motorcycle you might have a chance <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, do you find someone so connected to uh, our planet and so dedicated how, how does that how do you think about your job uh through that lens yeah well, I think having found a connection to nature, I, I you know I grew up spending the weekends in our black forest lodge in in Germany. There was what we would do as a family, and I always loved nature. But uh, I think Africa gave me that connection back, and having seen what nature does to you and how important nature is and, and connecting to it, but at the same time also experience the destruction. Uh, and I can f sense that, I mean, make it pains me. Yeah, I, I have that connection when I see, you know, a, a dead animal that has been poached. And that was one of my first experience being on the continent. And it's just, you know, it's painful. Uh, and, and I have a very strong emotional reaction. And I think we get more passionate about things when we have that emotional connection. And having become a conservationist is comes from me just connecting with nature and, and you know, feeling it. So I think that has helped me to become what I am and, 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 and also realizing that, uh, you know, as business leaders, we have a responsibility and opportunity to contribute to a better world in a way. You know, it's not all about the quarterly financial profit. It's about, you know, how do we care about our people, our employees, our stakeholders and, and you know, our planet. Nature is a, is a stakeholder and we all know that we live in a time where we are out, outside of planetary boundaries. You know, climate is a, is a huge problem. And I think we have an opportunity and responsibility to contribute positively. And when you are that connected to nature, you automatically take that into your job. And I, I experienced, you know, early in my career, the, how we would manufacture our, our footwear. Uh, uh, in our factories and I would just get out of the factory with red eyes because of the the, the the fumes and I would see the river being totally polluted because of the waste that was we washed into and I said that that just can't be right and that, we didn't own the factories but it was our product in there so I, I realized very early that you know I needed to really take responsibility for, for what we were doing. I think about I don't know if you do it Harley I'm sure you do you know, it's a founder company. Same with Henry Ford. You know, a lot of car companies aren't founder-led companies. They were like financial mergers and along the way, and they kind of created their brand, and it was kind of manufactured brand. In Ford's case, you know, we had a founder, and I, I think 
I think he would find the last 70 years of Ford totally boring. <laughs> but I would think he right now he would love to come back at this point in Ford because we need that creativity. We need that founder spirit, you know, to do stuff that's unexpected. And how do you think about that at Harley? Because Harley's been through so much ups and downs and different different administrations. You know, we're here as leaders for just a short period of time. What, what do you think the founders of Harley-Davidson would say if they looked at what you're doing and where the company's going? I think they would be very, very happy and pleased. Um, in, in fact, I had that conversation with Willie G. Davidson, mm. um, who, who lives in Milwaukee, and uh, I went to, to see his uh, great collection in his house, and we talked a lot about the history, and, and he's very excited mm. about what we're doing. You know, he's a designer, right? He loves innovation, and... And he he's put his mark on on this company, you know, took it public, took it private, uh, you know, bought it out from, uh, you know, from the private equity firm. I mean, he's been through some troubling times, and uh, and is a true entrepreneur. I think he lo- he would love that entrepreneurial spirit that we have back at Harley with the new bikes we're bringing out and how we respect and cherish the past and the heritage of the brand but evolve it at the same time so he's very excited and that uh, i think gives me confidence that we're on the right path Jochen, i am so excited about what you're doing especially after a conversation today and as a biker and someone who's watched harley from a distance and at times been frustrated with the company for you to be uh, motorcycle of the year and adventure bike of the year Congratulations. I've really enjoyed learning more about you and uh, where your innovation comes from, your commitment to the planet. And to to think that you're leading Harley at this time seems like everything in the world aligned just right. Uh, is there anything that you think we missed? Well, maybe next time we can turn this around and I can ask you all the questions. <laughs> <That'd> be, <laughs> because I'm really curious, curious to hear you know the things you've been facing and so i i have a lot of questions but i guess that's for for another day (laughs) oh yes Uh, and thank you so much for your time today thank you jim this was great fun and i look forward to our first ride together that would be great i can't (laughs) wait Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Spotify. Chris Curtin is consulting producer. Our production staff includes Julia Knott and Eva Walchover, with help from Lori Arpin, Jeff Nelson, Josh Malofsky, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Special thanks to Liz Kellogg and Matt Lieber. Jim Farley is the host, and this is Drive. <laughs>